Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with a display of anti-democratic thuggery in the Tennessee State House, where the Republican majority expelled three Democratic representatives from the state's main cities, Nashville, Knoxville and Memphis. This authoritarian railroading was a response to the Democratic representatives supporting the students who poured into the State House in response to the gun massacre of nine-year-olds at a Nashville school. Joining us to discuss how Republican majorities in state legislatures in Wisconsin, Florida, Tennessee and other red states are shutting out the voice of the people is John Nichols, who is The Nation magazine's Washington correspondent, His books include The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's Anti-Fascist, Anti-Racist Politics, and most recently, Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers, Accountability for Those Who Caused the Crisis. His latest article at The Nation is Wisconsin Chooses a Progressive Justice in the Most Important Election in 2023. Then we'll look into the dangerous lack of dialogue between the world's two biggest military and economic powers who are not talking to each other in a manner reminiscent of the Cold War between the US and the Soviet Union. Joining us to urge for more citizen-to-citizen engagement and comment on France's President Macron's visit to China, where Xi Jinping is hosting him with pomp and ceremony, is Scott Kennedy, a senior advisor and trustee chair in Chinese business and economics at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, a leading authority on China's economic policy and its global economic relations. He's been traveling to China for over 30 years, and his books include The Fat Tech Dragon, Benchmarking China's Innovation Drive, Perfecting China, Inc., China's 13th Five-Year Plan, and The Business of Lobbying in China. We'll discuss his latest article of Foreign Affairs, America and China Need to Talk, A Lack of Dialogue, Visits and Exchanges is Raising the Risk of Conflict. Then finally, we'll assess how to reverse the downward spiral in U.S.-China relations made worse by yesterday's meeting between Taiwan's President and House Speaker McCarthy. Joining us is Michael Swain, a senior research fellow and former and former director of the Quincy Institute's East Asia Program and one of the most prominent American scholars of Chinese security studies. Previously, he worked for nearly 20 years as a senior fellow at the Canadian Endowment for International Peace, specializing in Chinese defense and foreign policy, U.S.-China relations, and East Asia international relations. He also advises the U.S. government on Asian security issues, and his books include Remaining Aligned on the Challenges Facing Taiwan, and Conflict and Cooperation in the Asia-Pacific Region, a Strategic Net Assessment. We'll discuss his article at Responsible Statecraft. Ty McCarthy meeting will escalate U.S.-China tensions. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, 
your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org. Contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now are John Nichols, who is the Nation Magazine's Washington correspondent. His books include People Get Ready, The Fight Against a Jobless Economy and a Citizen-Less Democracy, and The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's Anti-Fascist, Anti-Racist Politics, and most recently, Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers, Accountability for Those Who Caused the Crisis. And his latest article at The Nation is Wisconsin Chooses a Progressive Justice in the Most Important Election in 2023. Welcome to Background Briefing, John Nichols. Well, it's great to be with you, my friend. Well, thanks for joining us. And no sooner has Wisconsin chosen a liberal Supreme Court justice against a very dangerous conservative who tried to overturn the 2020 results and inject fake electors into Trump's call to overturn the election. Now we're learning that the state senator who just got elected, who's now flipped the uh, the Senate uh, to a supermajority in that chamber, he's now talking about considering impeaching the judge that just got elected. This is extraordinary. I mean, how serious is he? Oh, not too serious. I think you're. I I think that um, look, having been in Wisconsin through the last twelve years, the period. From when Scott Walker took office, the former right-wing Republican governor, uh, up to now, I rule nothing out. I'm not casual and I'm not naive. Uh, so when I say this, I say it with, you know, some consciousness that there's there's something we have to keep an eye on. But um, the the Republicans control the state Senate with a two-thirds majority. They don't control the state house with that level of majority, um, and the state Senate majority leader, who is a, you know, he's very conservative, but a relatively sane character, has said they're not going anywhere near impeachment. Um, I know that there's a couple other uh, Republicans in the Senate, uh, some of the older members, who are just, I think, very disinclined to do it. So my gut instinct is this won't happen. Uh, and there's one other reason why I would argue it probably won't happen. And that is, if they remove Let's say they, they removed Janet Protosiewicz, the woman who just got elected, by uh, a landslide, by the way. Um, if they removed her from the court, um, the seat would come open and the liberal Democratic governor, Tony Evers, is in charge of appointing the successor. So um, the likelihood that it's going to happen, I think, is relatively slim. But what explains the fact that, you, on the one hand, you have a landslide electing this liberal Supreme Court justice, which could begin the undoing of all the gerrymandering, which is incredibly critical. But at the, in the same election, the Republicans take the Senate in a supermajority. Yeah, well, it's actually pretty easily explained. This is a gerrymandered Republican district. Um, the person who held the seat before this special election that occurred on, on Tuesday, was a Republican. So the Republicans had a two-thirds majority um, in December. Um, the only thing that's changed is that, that briefly, one of the members of their caucus quit. She stepped down. That triggered a special election. 
um, in her traditionally Republican seat. It's now been won by another Republican. And so um, there really wasn't a shift there. It wasn't that the seat flipped from Democrat to Republican. It's a traditionally longtime Republican seat that was briefly vacant. And now it, it is again a Republican seat. So if we isolate that reality and then look at the broader reality of what happened in the state, um, this Supreme Court election, the statewide election, saw a real shift to the more progressive position toward, toward the left. And Janet Protosewitz, the, the liberal candidate for judge in this open seat race for a position on the Supreme Court, she won the traditional Democratic heartlands of Milwaukee and Madison, Madison being just an incredible vote generator. She also won the small industrial cities that have traditionally been Democratic, like Racine and Kenosha. She, in addition to that, won tw- more than 20 rural counties. In fact, in some rural counties, she was getting 55, 60% of the vote. And so this really does, her, her victory sort of recreated the old progressive map of, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And that was, you know, the cities and then Western Wisconsin's uh, more, you know, it's, it's more economically uh, depressed to some extent region um, voting with the cities to give Democrats a, a pretty solid majority. And, um, and I'm not going to say that that's going to hold forever. This was a, every race is unique and it has, they all have their own dynamics, but there's simply no question that this victory for Janet Protosewitz holds out real possibilities for Democrats going forward. In fact, if I was Joe Biden looking at Wisconsin uh, as regards 2024, I'd be feeling very, very good. I thought it was things were worse, and you told me that they're not. Because I'm, I'm really concerned well, as, about yeah, this I, kind well, of fascist dystopia developing in red states after having well, seen what happened is. today in Tennessee, which was just the worst kind of thuggish anti-democratic action on the part of the Republicans in the state house, expelling three Democrats from the state house all of whom represent the three biggest cities, Nashville, Knoxville, and Memphis. And it's an absolutely outrageous display. But it sort of underlines the kind of mentality of the guy that said that he could uh, impeach the woman that just got elected with a supermajority. That's what's bothering me. So did you see what happened today in in Tennessee? Oh, yeah, I watched it. And and you're absolutely, Ian, you're absolutely right to be bothered by this. I don't think you should, um, you know, I, I don't think we need to delink these things, right? Um, what happened in Tennessee um, was what you get in a, in a clearly red state, a state where Republicans have, you know, trifecta universal control, governorship, both houses of the legislature, the courts. Um, Wisconsin's not that kind of state. Wisconsin is a battleground state. It is a... a a swing state that has a Democratic governor, a very liberal Democratic senator, um, and and most of our major, almost all of our major cities are controlled by progressive Democratic mayors. So, you know, I think that's the way to think of America. We have very Democratic states uh, like California, New York, Illinois, a handful of others. We have very Republican states, um, Tennessee being one of them, and most of the states of the South and the interior West. And then we have our swing states and our swing states, Wisconsin, you know, Pennsylvania, uh, to some extent, Michigan, although that seems to be moving more into the Democratic counts. You know, this is this is the, the kind of map of the U.S. 
And, and I think we have to be deeply, deeply concerned about what's going on now in the red states. Because in a state like Tennessee, as an example, um, that's a state where Democrats are going to get about 40% of the vote, uh, maybe even if they've got a strong candidate, you know, well into the 40s. So, you know, two-fifths of the people in that state or more are Democrats, right? Um, and yet you have a situation where the Republican majority is literally seeking to leave them voiceless, you know, not to, not to um, dismiss them or diminish them, you know, as you would in politics usually, but literally to expel them and disenfranchise the people that they represent. That is a deeply ugly political reality that's developing. You see it in Florida, where Ron DeSantis has tried to remove prosecuting, elected prosecuting attorneys who he disagrees with. Um, you're seeing it in other places around the country. And, and so there is clearly a trend uh, where we're seeing uh, Republicans who get in charge of states, if they've got overwhelming control of those states, they're trying to shut them down. They're trying to shut down the opposition so that they're just, we don't have effectively a democracy. Now that's happened to some extent in Wisconsin where gerrymandering has been used to make most elections non-competitive for the legislature. So the problems exist all over, but um, I guess the thing that we ought to do, what we ought to take away from it all is that this is, as you suggest, a time to be incredibly alert to the fundamental threats to democracy that exist um, all over the country, but particularly in, in the red states, and to recognize that this is taking us toward uh, a political authoritarianism that we should be terrified by. I mean, we should be terrified by, but also energized to, to fight. Well, like to that extent, I guess you could be inspired by the young African-American assembly member who was expelled today by the Tennessee Republicans, Representative Justin Jones, who made the most passionate and articulate speech. And he, mm -hmm. just to quote some of it, what we see today is just a spectacle. What we see today is a lynch mob assembled to not lynch me, but our democratic process. But it will not stand. Yep. We called for you all to ban assault weapons, and you responded with an assault on democracy. That is why the nation is watching you today. This is not about expelling us as individuals. This is your attempt to expel the voice of the people from the people's house, and it will not be successful. I sure hope he's right, but it's just... I, if it do too. I mean, uh, you know, this is a, a kind of fascist dystopia that's developing in these red states. Well, I think that what you have to understand is that, that if you look at history... And you look at circumstances where um, countries have moved from a some you know reasonably well-developed small-d democratic model toward an authoritarian model. Um, it doesn't always happen with one fell swoop. It doesn't ha always happen with uh, one moment where everything shifts. It often begins with precisely things like this, where you see the expulsion of those you disagree with, where you see the warping and mangling of election processes so that, you know, even though you have the facade of democracy, the, the elections being held, um, you know always who is going to win. And it, this is one of the things that you ought to keep very alert to, because, I mean, clearly, if you look at, say, like Italy in the early 1920s, you know, it is true that the fascists were in the Italian parliament, 
but so too were um, social Democrats and, and centrists and others. And slowly but surely, the authoritarians, uh, the, the fascists, uh, began to disempower, expel, even physically threaten um, their opposition. You, that's a pattern that has existed throughout history. It's something that we've seen very clearly. Historians will tell us all about it. And it is something that you, you want to keep conscious of. I'm not going to tell you that, that Tennessee is a fascist state right now. I mean, it, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, diverse political activism there. There's a lot of people pushing back. Um, they have the courts, and hopefully the courts might do the right thing. Um, and there's other, other factors at play here. But what I am telling you is that when you see things like this happen, like what's happened today in Tennessee, you have to, you know, put the red flag up. You have to recognize that this is an alert. This is an alarm. And, and as the state representative says, this cannot stand. If it does stand, if this becomes our new reality in Tennessee and potentially in other states where you expel those who take a strong stand in opposition, uh, who happen to be in the minority politically and thus disenfranchise their constituents, um, you're really creating uh, a new politics in America. And it's a very ugly and very dangerous politics. And where, while it is occurring now in the red states, I think you have to be conscious that this is something that could be exported to swing states as well. So that in those rare moments where, say, one party gets universal control of a swing state, say the Republicans come to full charge where they've got the governorship and the legislature and maybe the courts as well, as they did briefly have in Wisconsin, um, that they might do far more extreme things than they've done in the past. They might import some of these ideas from uh, Tennessee. And, and that's, that gets really scary because in a swing state, that's where you might create a situation where you literally make it, um, you, you, you don't disenfranchise a political minority. You might actually even be disenfranchising a political majority. So just in the last minute then, what do you do, though, practically, to stand up to these authoritarian legislative thugs? Well, I think you show th- solidarity with people in red states like, like Tennessee and you know, support their efforts to legally uh, challenge what's occurring and to try and see if they can overturn it. That's a really important thing. And, and you know, taking these cases into the state courts and into the federal courts um, on you know, equal representation, a host of other issues, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of territory to work there, but that's going to be expensive and it's going to take time. So that solidarity across state lines matters a lot. Beyond that, though, I think you have to take a lesson from Wisconsin. We started talking about the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Remember that uh, 10 years ago, Wisconsin had Republican governor, Republican legislature, Republican court. And, um, and it really was a case where the Republicans were rolling over everything. What's important in that circumstance was that the Democrats didn't give up. Uh, they went back to organizing. They brought in a new state party chairman. They restructured a lot of what they've done. And the fact of the matter is they started winning elections, um, even in a state that, that some people were trying to write off and some people uh, were trying to give up on. Uh, and so since 2018 in Wisconsin, the uh, Democrats have won the governorship twice, the attorney general's job twice, um, other statewide positions. And they've won three statewide Supreme Court elections, uh, in each case, defeating uh, very well-financed, very powerful Republicans, or very, in this case, the Supreme Court races are technically nonpartisan, so you'd say very powerful conservatives. But the end result is, it's a real winning streak. And 
10 years ago, people would have said that was impossible. That wasn't going to happen uh, because the Republicans had such dominant control. So a core message here is to not give up, right? And to fight on even when the odds seem overwhelming. Because I can tell you from my home state of Wisconsin on Tuesday night, um, when those results came in, people realized that uh, a, a multi-year struggle had been had been successful and the control of the state Supreme Court had been flipped. And that will have profound impact for the state of Wisconsin. Well, John Nichols, I thank you very much for joining us here today. It's a pleasure to be with you, my friend. Well, thank you, John. And again, I've been speaking with John Nichols, who is the Nation Magazine's Washington correspondent. His books include People Get Ready, The Fight Against the Jobless Economy and a Citizen-Less Democracy, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's Anti-Fascist, Anti-Racist Politics, and most recently, Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers, Accountability for Those Who Caused the Crisis. And his latest article at The Nation is Wisconsin Chooses a Progressive Justice in the Most Important Election of 2023. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking to the dangerous lack of dialogue between the world's two biggest military and economic powers who are not talking to each other in a manner reminiscent of the Cold War between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. So upset in Tennessee's made me lose my rest. Everybody knows about Mississippi gone there. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Scott Kennedy, a senior advisor and trustee chair in Chinese business and economics at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, a leading authority on China's economic policy and its global economic relations. He has been traveling to China for almost 30 years, and his books include The Fat Tech Dragon, Benchmarking China's Innovation Drive, Perfecting China Inc., China's 13th Five-Year Plan, and The Business of Lobbying in China. And he has an article at Foreign Affairs, America and China Need to Talk. A lack of dialogue, visits, and exchanges is raising the risk of conflict. Welcome to Background Briefing, Scott Kennedy. Thank you so much, Ian. Good to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And the fact that uh, the U.S. is China is not talking, in fact, the, in effect, you could argue the opposite is happening. As tensions are being raised by the meeting that Kevin McCarthy had with President Tai Taiwan at the Reagan Library yesterday. Meanwhile, in China, of course, there's a state visit uh, by the French President Macron, who is being feted by his host, Xi Jinping. So is Macron sending us a message that uh, we've got to get our act together? Um, I, I don't think so. He, he is actually providing a model for what we should be doing, uh, which is uh, engaging directly with the Chinese, whether that's it, back in Paris or in Beijing or wherever. We've had a variety of phone calls between the U.S. and uh, Chinese leaders, and they did meet in person in Bali. Uh, the, they need to talk more, but more important than the, the, the two top leaders uh, speaking with each other, we need the entirety of the two governments to be able to communicate with each other, engage in dialogue, and that includes members of Congress, as well as scholars, business people, tourists. The last three years of the pandemic uh, is not normal. The, the communication really dried up uh, with 
it's not the source of the original source of the deterioration in U.S.-China relations, but until we start talking and interacting much more in depth, uh, the relations have zero chance of improving, and the crisis has a much greater chance of occurring. Well, we have, though, in the House, the Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party. They had their first hearing. It's a, it's a bipartisan committee. Not sure how many Democrats support it, but at least they have uh, Congressman Krishnamurti on as the ranking member. It seems to be sort of paranoid and hostile. I just wanted to get a sense from you whether you think the relationship is spiraling down, which it seems to be to me. Sure. I think, you know, in, in um, for the first decade and a half of the 21st century, the United States was still committed to a project of trying to integrate China into the international system, economically, politically, strategically. And then uh, with the Trump administration, when it came into office, it was almost done with that enterprise. And it tried one last time to use unilateral pressure, uh, you know, pushing the Chinese to the edge of our market unless they made major reforms and concessions, which they did with the phase one trade deal. But then we had the pandemic breakout in early 2020. And the U.S. since then has really just decided to put pressure on China with the expectation that it wouldn't change, that it couldn't change, that Xi Jinping wasn't interested. And so we've seen a whole series of policies on technology, the growth of activity in Congress, both in terms of number of pieces of legislation, as well as organizationally with the select committee. And we really are gearing up for, uh, you know, putting a lot of pressure on the Chinese. And a lot of that is deserved. China has brought that on itself. But what, what we're encouraging in this piece that we published in, in Foreign Affairs isn't that the U.S. and China just simply put aside their differences, but that they actually just communicate and talk to each other about their differences. Uh, and try and figure out where there might be possibilities of result, you know, addressing some of these and, and, and actually just trying to understand each other a lot better. I mean, I, as a scholar, have a much I still speak every day about China and read about China. But my knowledge about China is a lot less than it used to be. Uh, and the same for other scholars and for members of the policy community. And China's policy community knows a lot less about us. So we're just suggesting that greater connectivity increases our understanding, whether we're friends or whether we're foes. But from the point of view of the Chinese leader, Xi Jinping, who, as I mentioned, is hosting the president of France, Macron, at the moment, he has said that the U.S. Washington's goal is to contain, surround, and suppress China. And how much do you think there's some credibility to that? I think uh, Xi Jinping likely uh, believes that based on uh, his experience and his ideology and the people around him. And I'm not saying that having greater connectivity and having more meetings between Biden and Xi Jinping are going to address all of his worries and provide sufficient reassurance. So he doesn't think that anymore. But there does need to be a great deal more connectivity and interaction I talked to a, a, a Chinese colleague who's followed the U.S. for decades, and he told me that he could just follow the U.S. closely enough by going to the State Department website and reading the State Department spokesperson's briefing remarks. That is uh, got useful information, but it's nowhere near enough. And so our Chinese colleagues 
have far less information about the United States than they ought to have, whether it's through government or non-governmental sources, media. And so I'm just saying that we need to actually get back to a normal state of affairs in terms of connectivity and communication. Uh, that won't solve every problem, but we know that things will only get worse if we remain basically physically isolated from each other. So, Scott Kennedy, let's talk about your article at Foreign Affairs America and China Need to Talk. A lack of dialogue, visits and exchanges is raising the risk of conflict. Now, you and the co-author, Wang Jixi, he visited the U.S. and you visited China, right, in 2022. And that was the plan for his take yeah. on America and your take on China. Exactly, exactly. So we both had been... Uh, stuck in our basements essentially for a long time. And uh, we've known each other and we've done online dialogues together with other scholars. Uh, Wang Jisu is China's leading America watcher. And so he came to the U.S. in February and March of 2022. And I ended up eventually being able to get to China in September and October of of last year. We both spent about uh, a month and a half in the other country uh, observing people, talking to people in government, business, scholars, journalists. And based on that, we came away with sort of new ideas and insights about what was going on in the country that others weren't able to glean from uh, the media and from government official statements. And uh, he's, he's come back to the U.S. again. I've gone to China again. I was just there a couple weeks ago. And so uh, we think that uh, that ought to not be seen as so uh, radical and crazy that, that people travel. Uh, and But there's a lot to do to provide uh, the building blocks of restoring communication. You, you just don't do it at the snap of a finger. Uh, you need visas, you need flights, you need uh, a whole lot of things to occur. You need people to feel comfortable and safe that when they travel, uh, nothing is going to bad happen to them. And so we still are in the early days of, of putting everything back together again. But you were there in China during the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and you talked to a number of Chinese officials, apparently, uh, who weren't entirely in agreement with Xi Jinping's political support for Vladimir Putin. So uh, elaborate on that, if you will. Sure. So so Wang Jisou was here in early 2022, right around the the time that the war broke out and Russia invaded. I went in the fall of 2022, you know, long after the war had started, but when there's still behind the scenes, significant discussion in China uh, uh, amongst officials and experts about, about the war, about Russia and China relations, about where things were going and what that meant for China's relationship with the United States and also over the question of, of Taiwan. And I do think that there is, um, you know, second guessing or concerns about China's position uh, in the in the war, essentially officially being neutral, but really leaning to one side and throwing a lot of political support to Putin, that uh, that creates potential opportunities, but also downside risks to China. The initial decision to lean to one side to sign that to issue that joint declaration of friendship without limits, um, I think probably assumed that if there that there might not be a war, but if there was a war, it would end quickly with Russia winning. That's not what happened. Uh, and China is now in a much more precarious position because Russia is in a much more precarious position. 
So I think there's just a question, you know, how does China uh, reduce the cost that it's paid from the position that it's taken? Uh, how does is it stuck uh, with Russia being sort of North Korea, but 25 times the size? Um, and, and, you know, Chinese scholars, experts, officials, uh, business people, they think about China's place in the world. And, you know, there's although Xi Jinping is dominant in policymaking and really that he has no peer competitor or challenger. It's a large country with, with people that have a variety of opinions. And you don't see that when you're sitting uh, outside China in your office and just reading the media because Chinese media is 100 percent controlled. But this but by traveling, you get to see uh, a little bit of, of what the conversation is like. And certainly for when Chinese are in the United States, they get to see a little bit more about the diversity of thought that we have as well. So what then do you think happened with Xi's recent summit with Putin in Moscow? It was supposed to be scheduled for three days, and it only lasted two days. And it seems as if there was a disagreement between Putin and Xi. Putin wanted Xi to condemn the United States and make the United States the, the main enemy as the way that he sees it. And my understanding is that the Chinese have always been concerned about sovereignty, and perhaps it would have been better for Biden and the U.S. to frame the the issue of a, the invasion of Ukraine as an issue of sovereignty as opposed to democracy. But nevertheless, what's your take on what happened there or what didn't happen? Yeah. So, you know, we weren't in the room, and uh, we're, we're going to be hard. To, we're doing a lot of speculating, and that's a lot of what China experts are doing these days because of the, the limits on, on information. But I think broadly speaking, we understand that both Russia and China have common interests in stabilizing their border and their relationship with each other because they both have big problems with the United States. The U.S. is in terms of its overall power, uh, the norms that the U.S. is advocating that it's uh, its alliance relationship uh, with countries near China and also in, in NATO in Europe. So they both have reasons to be disaffected with the United States and, and, and sing a common tune about, about the United States. At the same time, Russia is much more uncomfortable with all elements of the existing international order and is, is willing to um, uh, you know, push back very hard and violently against that order. The Chinese are disaffected by the order They'd like to, it revised, but they don't want to break down that order. China is a big participant in international multilateral institutions, in trade uh, and other areas. And it really would just like to revise those orders. That's not just, but it, it wants to revise the orders as opposed to just simply uh, break everything. And as a result, they have very different positions on, you know, they have somewhat different positions about how to deal with. Uh, Ukraine. China would like so the idea sovereign norms to be protected. China does not want to provide military support to Russia because its economic bread is buttered in the West and with its, its neighbors in East Asia. And so what you're seeing, I think what we saw during the, uh, Xi Jinping's trip to Moscow, is, is those differences, those fault lines between Russia's view of the international system and China's play out in a meeting that didn't go precisely as originally scripted and somewhat different from what the two sides originally planned. But again, China is really struggling uh, about its position between these two worlds, and, and, and that's what we're, we're seeing play out. Uh, and it's, um, 
you, you know, when you travel to China, you get to see that why there are those anxieties there. But it would seem that Macron's visit is China's way of reassuring Europe that it still wants to have good relations. And I mean, does that represent that there's kind of pressures within China? The more militaristic military types are probably more pro-Putin and perhaps even want to arm the Russians. But I would think that the business and trade people uh, don't want to lose their markets and they don't want brand China to suffer. And if China throws its lot in with Putin overtly, then brand China will suffer. And needless to say, we'll be sanctioning China and probably our economy will suffer too. Well, you, I think you're a, a very good an- analyst of this, and you should be giving advice to Xi Jinping and to Macron about what they should be doing. I would say in watching the Chinese interaction with Europe I, uh, over the last few years, I've been uh, surprised by the tenure of, of the Chinese and in misreading the Europeans. I think they, oh, they underestimated what Europe's negative reaction to Russia's invasion and to China's political support for, for Putin. It's really had a huge effect on, on European views of China, also coming on the heels of other tensions between Europe and, and China uh, regarding human rights issues in Xinjiang and, and elsewhere. And, and so what you hear primarily emphasized by the Chinese side during Macron's visit is this word strategic autonomy. France does not have to to follow the United States. It can make it up its own mind. It should think back to the era of the Gaul. And in fact, that's just not where Europe is now. They are not equidistant between Washington and Beijing. They really are a Western power as part of the Western alliance supporting democracy. And in fact, I think what we've seen, what's been interesting is in Macron's visit, he's been pushing Xi Jinping. If, you're, if you say you're pr- promoting peace and have a deal, well, then push some on on Russia. And that's actually very similar to Chancellor Scholz when he visited in late October, early November. He also wasn't trying to, you know, go halfway between China and Washington because he's got business interests or things like that. So I think what Beijing is discovering is actually there is this idea called the West that is alive and well, in part because of, of what Russia has done. And that presents greater challenges than China would have uh, expected. Well, Macron said to Xi, uh, as they met in the Great Hall of the People in Tiananmen Square, I know I can count on you to bring back Russia to reason and everyone back to the negotiating table. So <laughs> no ambiguity there, Scott. And yeah. I, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. It's been a lovely time talking with you. Well, thank you, Scott. And again, I've been speaking with Scott Kennedy, a senior advisor and trustee chair in Chinese business and economics at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, a leading authority on China's economic policy and its global economic relations. He has been traveling to China for almost 30 years, and his books include The Fat Tech Dragon, Benchmarking China's Innovation Drive, Perfecting China, Inc., China's 13th Five-Year Plan, and The Business of Lobbying in China. And he has an article of Foreign Affairs, America and China need to talk. A lack of dialogue, visits and exchanges is raising the risk of conflict. We're going to take a restation break. We're back with an assessment of how to reverse the downward spiral of U.S.-China relations made worse by yesterday's meeting between Taiwan's president and House Speaker McCarthy. Hmm, I'm going to get you. 
on a slow boat to China all to myself alone get you and keep you in my arms evermore leave all the others waiting on a faraway shore welcome back I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org and joining us now is Michael Swain a senior research fellow and former director of the Quincy Institute's East Asia program and one of the most prominent American scholars of Chinese security studies Previously, he has worked for nearly 20 years as a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, specializing in Chinese defense and foreign policy, U.S.-China relations, and East Asian international relations. He also advises the United States government on Asian security issues, and his books include Remaining Aligned on the Challenges Facing Taiwan and Conflict and Cooperation in the Asia-Pacific Region, a Strategic Net Assessment. And he has an article at Responsible Statecraft, The Thai McCarthy Meeting Will Escalate U.S.-China Tensions. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Swain. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ian. Glad to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, Michael. And the meeting took place yesterday between the President of Taiwan and the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, at the Reagan Library in Simi Valley, just north of uh, here in Los Angeles. So... I'm not hearing a lot from China. I mean, I know she's hosting President Macron of France. Uh, what are you hearing in response? Have they made an official statement? Oh, yes. The Chinese have made an official statement. They have, of course, said that this represents a continued escalation of the of the situation between the U.S. and China regarding Taiwan, further retreat from the One China policy. They see it as, a, as an escalation. And um, they have said that you know they will take appropriate responses or severe there will be severe consequences. I can't remember the exact wording that they've used, but they've thus far uh, limit it seems limited what they've done in response to uh, diplomatic political statements. Um, we have not yet seen the kind of uh, military displays, fireworks that we saw. Um, after the Nancy Pelosi visit to uh, to Taiwan. Well, of course, that's the difference, isn't it? Nancy Pelosi actually went to Taiwan. In this case, President uh, Tsai was on in transit, having gone to visit Guatemala and Belize, and on the way back, or maybe on the way to Central America and the Caribbean. Well, she stopped in New York on the way out, and she stopped in Los Angeles on the way back. Right, and right. So she had two transits. Um, and you're right. Uh, this uh, McCarthy's meeting with Tsai Ing-wen in Los Angeles, of course, did not take place in Taiwan. And uh, from that perspective, it wasn't, if you will, as bad as him traveling to Taiwan. But it was still uh, it was, in that case, the first instance of uh, a Taiwan president meeting with the third ranking leader of the United States government on U.S. soil. Um, so that did represent, um, in that sense, an escalation. Um, and it's part of a general pattern that has been going on now for, for quite some time in the nature of these transits. Um, although the number of them per per year or per, per administration hasn't really gone up in a huge way in recent years, but the ex- the length of time that the Taiwan president has been spending in the United States 
and the range of activities, public and otherwise, and with U.S. officials has been growing. So they've taken on more and more of a kind of a, you know, official tenor or an official appearance, um, despite the fact that the United States says it upholds you know, its continued, you know, upholding of the unofficial nature of the contacts. But, you know, it's it's hard to look at some of these interactions and, and think these are just purely unofficial contacts. Um, yes, they're not directed by the White House um, in, in, in every detail or at all in some cases, but nonetheless, they certainly have the trappings of what looks like government-to-government interactions. Uh, when you look at the the meeting between McCarthy and, and Tsai Ing-wen in Los Angeles, I mean, a huge amount of media fren- frenzy went into it. You know, they sort of sitting at both sides of the table in a very public way. Um, the only thing that was missing was flags on the table uh, for the meeting between Tsai Ing-wen and, and Kevin McCarthy. And President Tsai also met on the way to Guatemala and Belize with Hakeem Jeffries, the minority leader of the House, right? Right. That's so, right. do you know what happened in that meeting? Um, no, I. You know, I don't. I haven't really read a whole lot about what went on in that meeting. It hasn't been as much covered, and I haven't really been exploring that with people. So, I don't really have all that much to say about it. They, she did give a talk at the Hudson Institute in New York, um, that was attended by quite a few um, uh, politicians, etc., and and. Um, made comments about, you know, Taiwan and its in its defense of democracy and it's under threat and uh, various other statements that that were, you know, were were seen very positively by many in Washington. But going to Guatemala and Belize sort of indicates how few diplomatic relations Taiwan has, right? I think they only have three countries now that recognize them and obviously there's been a lot of bribing and counter-bribing from Taiwan and China to get these countries to recognize them. So what's the third country? I, I don't remember it. You're asking me questions I don't have the answer to, Ian. I, I yeah. just call off the top of my head. Right. Um, let's say Guatemala, Belize. Guatemala, just Belize. Uh, I, I can't think what, what... Right. Well, I can't either. But, so, but it's not that important. But, I mean, you, you accept the notion that countries have essentially been bribed by both sides and the Chinese seem to be winning that game. Well, uh, yes. I mean, I I think, I mean, the Chinese all along, I mean, they've been able to bring people away from Taiwan and towards the PRC and diplomatic recognition. Um, And they've, and they've timed that or they've done that on on many occasions for political reasons. They, one could argue that they could probably sweep the board uh, if they really offered enough um, with probably just about everybody except maybe the Vatican City um, in its in its recognition of uh, Taiwan and move it to the PRC, but they don't um, because they don't they want to they want to keep these actions in reserve uh, for various other things. I mean the the situation could get worse than it is now, and the Chinese you know don't want to expend all of their ammunition, if you will. Um, over one particular incident. But what really has changed in that dynamic and sort of the the buying of of recognition and such is that the United States government, uh, and this began under the Trump administration, has taken an active role in discouraging countries from doing what exactly the United States itself did, which was transfer 
recognition from the ROC, from the Republic of China and Taiwan to the People's Republic. Um, the United States in the past never did that. It, it never tried to intervene in this process, but it, under Trump, it actively sought to deter countries from shifting their recognition and, and criticize the Chinese for pressuring or enticing these countries to do so. And, you know, that is really a real departure uh, by the United States and, and really does indicate that um, it, it's trying to take actions that really go against a lot of the kind of assurances or, or at least the tenor of the relationship as it existed uh, for many decades. So what's the latest then on the Chinese spy balloon that caused so much trouble? and frayed relationship to the point where neither side, the Chinese or the United States, are talking to each other. And that in itself is not a good situation. There was a long delay in the Pentagon saying anything about what they'd recovered from off the coast of South Carolina. What's going on there? Is there, I mean... Well, there's still, we still don't know exactly what is the bottom line in, in this whole incident. Um, the most recent thing that came out of the U.S. that I've seen was a reference to unnamed sources that said that um, they believe that the Chinese were controlling this balloon and moved it in sort of figure eight patterns over sensitive locations in the United States, which showed that it was under direct, direct control of Beijing and that it was, of course, being used for surveillance purposes. But there has been, as of yet, no full description and accounting of what the United States has recovered from that balloon. Exactly what were the capabilities on it um, that that lead people to think it was a surveillance balloon, and I think it probably was. Um, but there's been no clear evidence that the United States has shown to confirm the statements that are being made by by US officials. And also the the ability to control this balloon um, is also, I think, very much uh, a question, because there still hasn't been an accurate explanation as to how the Chinese were, 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 you know, able to control this balloon so precisely over these military locations, and yet at the same time, there it was at 60,000 feet with very strong kind of polar vortex winds over 100 miles an hour, um, pushing that balloon, and of course, pushed it across the United States and out um, off the east coast of the United States. And if, the, and if China had been able to control it so completely, you'd think maybe they wouldn't have had such a long, prolonged and, and you know, distant kind of passing or long range passing across the United States in that way. So it's, it's still, it, there's a lot of questions that remain, but I do believe, I agree with you that, I mean, the, the whole incident I think was just handled poorly by both sides. Um, there's a lot of aspects to it we could discuss if you if you want, but I think that on both sides, the kind of signaling with each other or the lack thereof um, to to really try to get to the bottom or try to at least resolve the situation, the amount of pressure that was put on in the U.S. case on the U.S. administration because of statements being made in the Congress and other places that the administration was incapable of really dealing with and pushing back on. Uh, the Chinese, uh, you know, their, their, their comment initially that they regretted that this balloon had gone over U.S. territory, but there was no follow-up by the U.S. on that point. 
to sort of say, okay, you regret this now. Let's talk more about how this happened and what you know. Why why do you regret this, etc. That didn't happen. Um, and the and the Chinese, of course, offering this, I think, pretty lame excuse that this was just an off course weather balloon or weather balloon. You know, all of that is it's still up in the air. But you just it, it really showed the lack of sustained ability to have a interaction with the Chinese to deal with this kind of a inflated, and I think it was inflated, uh, no pun intended, um, you know, uh, incident. Um, it, it really did get way more attention and way more kind of, uh, you know, I wouldn't call it hysteria, but a much more heightened sense of, of attention and focus on it than I think it really deserved. So I guess you're suggesting here, Michael Swain, that Secretary of State Blinken should not have cancelled his trip, and frankly, it would have been a much more mature thing to do to just to say we're extremely upset about this balloon and we need explanations, and that's why I plan to bring right. up these issues when I visit Beijing tomorrow, as opposed to caving in to the notion that the Republicans are going to jump all over him uh, for doing it. I mean, at what point? Should U.S. foreign policy not be intimidated by right-wing nativists? Well, I agree. I mean, I think, you know, you can make a very strong argument that Blinken should have gone to Beijing. Yes, I understand why he didn't go, but I think the reasons he didn't go were primarily domestic political. And you can't ignore that. I mean, that plays a role in U.S. foreign policy. There's no question about it. But in in this instance, in regarding U.S.-China relations more broadly as well, the role, the level, the extent of domestic um, politics playing a role in this relationship is just enormous. And it's probably, you know, higher than it's ever been, uh, with some with some exceptions, perhaps, in the U.S.-China relationship. And I don't think it serves the interests of either country very well. And I think there are domestic political pressures on the Chinese side as well. And both governments are showing an inability to be able to deal with that kind of pressure um, and and engage. I think there was an effort to try to have some conversation with the Chinese, at least based on some of the media reporting during the balloon incident, but it was all enshrouded in this, in this larger uh, context of sort of high sort of hair on fire kind of commentary that made it very, very difficult to be able to get anywhere with that kind of conversation. And then, of course, when the Blinken trip was canceled, it made it, you know, impossible to really have a high level. And when you did have a follow-up high-level conversation, which occurred on the on the sidelines of the Munich Security Conference between Blinken and Wang Yi, the senior figure in charge of foreign affairs, it was totally unproductive. Um, they just were trading barbs at each other. And, you know, coming out of that balloon incident, uh, which just showed the the inability of the two sides to really be able to engage each other in a more substantive way. So let's talk a little bit in the last couple of minutes here, Michael, about whether or not the United States Congress is interfering in Taiwan's domestic politics. Because the, while McCarthy meets with the president of Taiwan, the former president with the Kuomintang Party, the KMT, Ma, he's he's on a visit of China, visiting his ancestors' tombs and and getting not quite a, not a lavish treatment like Macron is getting, but uh, he's nevertheless there, traveling all around China with his family. So that's quite a contrast. 
are we meddling in domestic Taiwanese politics? Well, I, I don't think the United States is meddling in the sense that, I mean, Ma Ying-jeou's trip, the former Taiwan president Ma Ying-jeou's trip to China was not at the behest of the United States or uh, the United States did not come out, has not come out to my knowledge and explicitly opposed or criticized that trip. Um, you know, the, the broader question of does the United States interfere in Taiwan politics, I think is is not really, it's not so much a part of this Ma Ying-jeou uh, trip. I think I think the U.S. tries to stay out of interfering in Taiwan's domestic politics, but at times I think it needs to say things that it doesn't say. Um, when there are changes in Taiwan's position, now in the past, of course, the United States has intervened very directly in Taiwan politics during the Chen Shui-bian period in the early 2000s when the president of Taiwan was actively seeking to try to establish a more formal recognition in the international system of Taiwan as an independent nation, trying to call referenda in Taiwan and take other actions. Uh, at the time, the US President Bush very soundly and very directly rejected that. And it had a real impact on Chen Shui-bian and on Taiwan politics. So the United States has certainly intervened, but it really depends on you know to what ends and what purpose. In the past, it's intervened to try to deter Taiwan from going too far in, in one particular direction. I think more recently, it has failed to intervene in, in dealing with some of the things that the Tsai Ing-wen government has done, even though she has, yes, showed some restraint and some moderation, but nonetheless, she has very much furthered the, the kind of general mainstream in Taiwan towards a one China, one Taiwan type of situation. And uh, the United States, for a variety of different reasons, has not done uh, anything to try to caution about that uh, because they think, you know, it could be much worse. Uh, she could have done much worse things. So we should basically say, you know, what she's done is okay. Uh, so, you know, that really just begs the whole question of exactly how much is enough in terms of changing the status quo regarding Taiwan and its its uh, own self-identification and its relationship to the mainland, because the U.S. has very deep interests here and it can't take an entirely hands-off position regarding uh, what the Taiwan government does by any means. And when President Biden said recently, well, it's up to Taiwan to determine for itself if it's going to be independent. Well, that is frankly untrue. Um, it is not up to Taiwan alone to determine whether or not it will be a sovereign independent nation. It really is up to the actions of not just Taiwan, but other entities as well, in particular the United States, but also China and other countries in the international system. So Taiwan is not an independent actor in all of this. Sure. And the United States shouldn't act as if it is. And that's a red line for China. So you're talking Correct. about Correct. Uh, you know, a possible war. So we're not talking about something uh, light here. This is deeply serious. I thank you for joining us, Michael Swain. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Michael Swain, who's a senior research fellow and former director of the Quincy Institute's East Asia program and one of the most prominent American scholars on Chinese security studies. 
Previously, he worked for nearly 20 years as a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, specializing in Chinese defense and foreign policy, U.S.-China relations, and East Asian international relations. He also advises the U.S. government on Asia security issues, and his books include Remaining Aligned on the Challenges Facing Taiwan and Conflict and Cooperation in the Asia-Pacific Regions, a Strategic Net Assessment, and he has an article at Responsible Statecraft, the Thai-McCarthy meeting will escalate U.S.-China tensions. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. One more light goes on